Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Father, we do pray earnestly to you that you would raise up laborers, Lord, that you would give us a Christ-like compassion for the harvest, that you would draw us more deeply into the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. We hear his words proclaimed, Lord. Give us the grace to listen, to hear them, and to do them. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I've been married 25, coming up on 26 years, 26, coming up on 27 years, and I've made real strides in that time. In fact, in the past year, I've really matured a lot as a husband. I am able now to go to the grocery store unaccompanied (laughs) and bring back select essentials. Not everything, something she must go for, but occasionally I will go. And I've noticed at the grocery store some interesting things. The aisles are really long. I sometimes forget what I'm looking for by the time I reach the other end of the aisle. But fortunately, a lot of things you need can actually be found on the edges. They helpfully provide these little assortments of things right before you get down the aisle. These are called the end caps. On either side of the aisle, the end caps make it really convenient. If you want to be the kind of person who's in and out, just buy things that are on the end cap. The end cap kind of holds the aisle together. Occasionally, and I know this isn't the right way to do it, I know you should just look at the signs, but I often use the end caps to navigate my way through the store. It's never quite the same way twice, but, but whatever's on the end cap is a pretty good indication of what you might find if you go down the aisle. Now, our passage this morning is an end cap. In a very unusual and interesting way, the first verse, verse 35, which reads, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and affliction. If we were not working our way through Matthew's gospel at a snail's pace, that line might sound familiar. You've already heard it before. This is the end cap on the other side of the aisle. And before we entered this aisle, we saw it as we approached. But where? That's the question. This exact same sentence, almost exactly the same words, Matthew already wrote. But where did he do it? If you start working your way backwards through the Bible, we're at the end of chapter 9. If you went back to chapter 8, 7, 6, 5... Four is where you'd find it. At the end of Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, you find this exact phrase, more or less. The same three things 
used to summarize the teaching of Jesus. Theologians don't call these end caps, by the way. They have a fancier word. They call it an inclusio. An inclusio. It's a literary technique that is used in Scripture to indicate this stuff goes together. When a word or an idea or, in this case, a sentence is stated at the beginning of something, and then at the end, that same thing is repeated, that's a way to show that everything in between goes together, which is kind of interesting when you consider how long ago we looked at the end of Matthew chapter 4. Everything in between, 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and then 8 and 9, this narrative of miracle after miracle, all of this stuff in the structure of Matthew goes together and forms a single unit. He begins by giving us a summary of what the ministry of Jesus looks like. It involves teaching and proclaiming and healing. And then he gives us three chapters of what Jesus teaches, of, of the content of his teaching and his proclaiming. And then he gives us two chapters of Jesus' works, his healing, the stuff he does as part of his ministry. And now at the conclusion, he gives us this final summary, reminding us of what he told us before and then illustrated for us. If you look at our text, what we've just read, this, this little end cap actually has a really clear set of divisions. You could go down and say there are three points that Matthew makes here. 35 is the end of the inclusio, the repetition of the summary of Christ's ministry, the teaching, the proclaiming, the healing. But then in the next verse, verse 36, we get an insight into the way Jesus sees the people who are gathered around him, who are impacted by his ministry. And then in verses 37 and 38, Jesus shifts and he gives us another metaphor to think about, the metaphor of the harvest and the call for laborers. So one way to preach this text would be just work our way down the list. One, two, three, and look at those three things. We're not going to do that, though. We're going to do them out of order. And so what I need you to do is all that stuff I told you about aisles and end caps, I need you to forget that because I want to put another image in your mind that's going to orient you for, for what we're doing here. A mountain. Not a real literal mountain, but a two-dimensional mountain, the kind you might draw on a sheet of paper. You're going to draw a mountain on a sheet of paper or kids on a whiteboard right across the hall. You just need three points, right? You start at the bottom and you draw a line up to the summit and then a line down going to the other side. And there you've got a mountain. And that's what I want you to picture in your mind, three points, one, two, three, like that. You might think of us as going on a little journey together. We're going to ascend one slope of the mountain. We're going to reach the summit of the mountain, and then we will descend down the other side. Only we're actually not going to do that. Forget about that again, because what we're going to do is not go up to the summit and then go down. Instead, we're going to look at both sides before we look at the top, because as you know, mountains can be ascended from either side. You don't only go up one side and down the other. In an interesting way, you might think both sides of the mountain point up. 
However you encounter it, wherever, whatever side you show up on, the side you find yourself on is pointing you towards the summit. And that's the way that our text works here. So we're going to look at the two sides first. The first point that is made, and then the last point that is made. And then at the end, we're going to go to the heart of what's being said here and consider what chronologically seems to be our second point. So that's the metaphor. Keep that in mind, and it will help guide you as we proceed. So we're going to talk about that summary first, that summary of the teaching of Jesus and the proclaiming of the gospel and the healing of every disease. (laughs) But not in that order. For our first point, we're going to use the same structure of the mountain that we just did, and we're going to look at those three things the same way that we're going to look at our overall structure. Does that make sense? So three things, teaching, proclaiming, and healing, but not in that order. The first side, the first slope, that's teaching. Jump over the summit, and on the second side of the slope, that's healing. And at the top, at the summit, that's proclaiming. That's the image that I want you to have. And there's a reason for that. Because in the ministry of Jesus, these things serve a purpose. They're interrelated, but they're not all on the same level. Some things point to other things. The teaching of Scripture which we see throughout the ministry of Jesus. We saw it in the Sermon on the Mount outdoors. But we're reminded by Matthew, this is often taking place in the synagogue. It's in the synagogue where Jesus is doing this teaching. And when Jesus teaches in the synagogue, he uses the text of Scripture, and then he explains it. He basically teaches himself from what we would call the Old Testament. That's his teaching. But that teaching serves a purpose, and it's not just informational. It's not that Jesus has worried that in the synagogue, the standards of biblical literacy have fallen. And so he wants to do his part to call out some texts from the Old Testament and just explain to people what this stuff means so that they will have more knowledge. No. That teaching ministry has a direction Like There's something it's pointing to. It is literally pointing to the presence of the kingdom and the presence of the king. So that's one side of that mountain, the teaching. But that teaching is taking us upward. It is taking us upward and into the reality of the kingdom. Jesus is also healing. We've seen over and over again, ten different examples in just two chapters of Jesus healing people, making them whole, restoring them. But as we've observed time and time again, he's not doing it to show off. He's not doing it to demonstrate how powerful he is. He's doing it to point to something higher than that. And it points to the same thing that the teaching points to. So, in the same way that on one side of the slope, the teaching is pointing upwards, on the other side of the slope, the healing ministry of Jesus is pointing upwards. 
It's directing our attention. It's verifying and confirming. It's assuring us of the authority of a message that is at the top of that mountain. And if we go to the top of that mountain, there we find the reality of the kingdom. We find what Matthew calls the gospel of the kingdom. It's not just any gospel that Jesus is proclaiming. It is the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom of which he is the king, the one who rules and reigns with authority. Everything Jesus ever taught and everything he ever did, his ministry in every respect pointed towards the reality of the kingdom come. The reality of the king amongst his people. The reality of the fulfillment of the promises that his people had been waiting on for so long. The teaching and the healing are ways into the good news of the kingdom. But proclaiming the kingdom is the heart of the mission. Proclaiming the reality of the kingdom, that a new age has dawned, that is the heart of the gospel. That is why the gospel is called here the gospel of the kingdom. The problem with slopes and the reality that they can lead you to the top is that they can lead you to other places as well. It is possible for people who climb mountains never to reach the summit. It is possible, despite whatever signs may be pointing upward, to wander around on the side of the mountain endlessly and never realize what's at the top. People do this all the time. They do it literally. Now, I'm not a mountain climber. This may surprise you, but I've never ascended a mountain. But I do have friends who are avid mountain climbers, crazy people, really. But one of the things I'm always fascinated by is how many near-death stories they have to share. And they always make them sound really funny, even though they, they were like borderline tragic. They just happened to break the right way. Uh, but the thing is, a lot of people wander around on the side of mountains and never reach the top. Sometimes they, they fall down into cliffs. Sometimes they, they get their, their orientation wrong. They lose their way. And the mountain we're talking about here is that kind of mountain. There are a lot of people who think they know what the heart of the message of Jesus is. And they know with certainty that it's to be found over here on the slope. It's in the teaching. It's in the doctrine. It's in the fine points. It's like you should be able to quote all the Old Testament prophets and, and say what their actual New Testament fulfillment was. You should be able to articulate all the doctrine correctly and not fall victim to all the tricky heresies that people only even know about when they take a class on ancient heresies. It's possible on the slope of teaching to get confused, to get lost in the maze, and not to find our way to the top. Does that mean teaching is bad and we should have less of it? No. It's essential, but it is essential to realize where it points to and to go there. By the same token, a lot of people get lost on the slope of signs and miracles and power, looking for those sensations, for those verifications, and forgetting where Jesus' miracles pointed to, what purpose they served. Don't chase after teaching for the sake of teaching, and don't 
case after healing for the sake of healing, remember the purpose that these things served in the ministry of Jesus and, and go where they direct you. Go to the kingdom. Two quick practical applications here. The fact that Matthew reminds us that Jesus is doing this ministry, that he's doing this teaching in the synagogues and not in the wilderness is a good reminder to us of the continuity of Jesus' ministry with what had gone before. Jesus is not saying, hey everybody, this synagogue thing, this is done. Come join me out in the wilderness where we're having outdoor church. That's not what's going on. This new order is not erasing and leaving behind the old. It's actually breaking out within the old. Because it's not an abolition, it's a fulfillment. There's a reason why there's continuity between the old covenant community and the new covenant community. There's a reason why when the early Christians are saying, hey, how should we do church? Like, I can't find the verse in the New Testament that tells me what to do about this, that, and that. The other Christians are like, dude, have you never been to synagogue? We already have a pattern for how we do this. It's the way Jesus did it when he was here. Continuity. It goes together, which means there could be no question that what the message of Jesus and the mission of Jesus is about is a reset, a start over, or some sort of side mission, because it's happening within the main line, the main message. This is God's plan of salvation, reaching fulfillment. Also, another thing. You don't have the gospel unless it's the gospel of the kingdom. You may think you understand what the gospel is all about, but if the gospel that you understand is not about the kingdom, it's not about Christ the King, restoring all things, making all things new, then what you have is not the gospel as Matthew understands it. Christ's reign right now and in the life to come, is what everything points to. It is the reality from which everything that's been promised to us actually flows. You're not talking about the kingdom. You're not talking about the gospel. Because the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. So, as we move on, and we're jumping over the middle here, we're jumping over compassion for a moment and just looking at at the harvest metaphor here. The purpose of that metaphor is to follow up on one thing that Jesus has already done. When he talks about compassion, he gives uh, the reason why Jesus feels compassion. He compares the people to uh, sheep without a shepherd. That's uh, an image familiar to us. Zechariah uses that image to describe the people of Israel. Remember, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Other prophets make this same comparison. The idea of the people of God, of Israel, as sheep without a shepherd is one that would be familiar to any student of Old Testament prophecy. And what Jesus is doing there is calling out authority. Those people should have shepherds. They were given shepherds. There were religious authorities in Israel in the days of Jesus. There were priests. There were Pharisees, there were leaders, scribes, people who knew and had a responsibility to teach, had a responsibility to shepherd the people. They just didn't do it 
And that's why the people were in the state that they were in. So Jesus is calling them out. He's saying these authorities are bad authorities. They're not using their power rightly. They are abusing it. But it's in that context that he now speaks to us of a harvest. Because there's a harvest, a harvest that is vast and ready to be brought in, but there is one problem, and it is how few laborers there are. Now, I know that's a familiar image, right? That's one of those things when we're talking about evangelism. I mean, this is the go-to passage, right? If, if I wanted to make you feel bad about how much evangelism you're not doing every day, this would be a great place to go. Jesus says, there's a great harvest out there. There are just few laborers. You should pray earnestly for laborers, for more workers, for more harvesters to bring in that harvest, Right? But what exactly is he talking about there? Like, what is the context that he's speaking to? Put it this way. What role would these new laborers be filling? What responsibility would they be taking? Surely it's the responsibility that has been abdicated by those to whom it was entrusted. Two metaphors, a flock without a shepherd... And then immediately a harvest without harvesters. They go together. What Jesus is speaking to here is the need for new authority. There needs to be new authority. The the old leaders who were entrusted with the mission did not carry it out. We need new leaders who will fulfill the mission that they've been given. It's not an accident that in the very next chapter... Jesus sends out the twelve, actually begin to do the work that he's talking about here. He's inaugurating a new kind of authority, an apostolic authority that will supersede the authorities of the past, that will take over the job that was neglected by those shepherds who abandoned their flock. It's fascinating to see the condition of the people as a result of their lack of leadership. The state of the crowd. The crowds who gather around Jesus have a real longing. They have a real desire. Like they want to hear what he's saying. They want to see what he's doing. But there's also something frustrating, conflicted about those crowds. Because yeah, they're eager. Yeah, they're following. But the thing they're most excited about is not the summit, but the slope. The thing that that motivates them is to see the works Jesus will do. Or to see the authority with which he teaches. He's so much better than a scribe. He's so much better than a doctor. But they're not necessarily seeing that he's a king. They're not necessarily recognizing that it is the kingdom that he has come to proclaim. They value the wrong things. They prize the signs over what they signify. They long for physical wholeness instead of spiritual wholeness, just like they long for a physical kingdom and not a spiritual kingdom. And this is because they haven't been taught, because they don't know any better. Jesus is constantly saying, you should know this. If you knew your scripture, you would understand what I'm saying. But they don't because they don't. Because the people who were meant to teach them didn't. 
So the people misinterpret and the people put their hope in the wrong things. So if the people are shepherdless, they need a shepherd. That would be the solution to that problem. If there's a big harvest and no laborers, the solution is to recruit laborers, to get more people working on that problem. In other words, the answer to an abdication of authority is to establish new authority. And so Jesus calls his people to long for that, to pray for that, to desire it, to pray that God will send new harvesters, new shepherds, new leaders, who will shepherd the people rightly and who will bring the harvest into the kingdom. It's not too much of a spoiler to say, if we ask ourselves, well, who are these harvesters, to say, the twelve. The twelve. Jesus is about to send them out, the apostles, and everyone who follows after them. Everyone who follows in their footsteps. The apostolic mission is a mission of bringing in the harvest, bringing God's people into God's kingdom. And for that to happen, there must be a new authority. The answer is not to get rid of authority. The answer is to get authority right, to actually fix what has gone wrong. The new covenant will be built on the old foundation of the prophets, but also on the new foundation of the apostles, beginning in Matthew 10. Throughout Matthew 8 and 9, we've been confronted with a reality that is not very American, a reality that is not very democratic, that is not very individualistic, that we must have authority in our lives. The gospel message is not about throwing off authority so that we can be free. The gospel of the kingdom proclaims that you can never be free until you are under the right authority. Yeah, human authority is corrupt. Human authority is awful. On the overall scheme of things, we could think of a lot of worse authorities than the Pharisees. Jesus sees that reality and doesn't say, you know what, this authority thing, it just doesn't work. I think Christian anarchy is the way to go or something like that. Instead, Jesus' response is to raise up new authority, specifically authority sent by God. Authority sent by God will become the foundation of the covenant community because true human freedom comes from serving the right authority, Christ's authority, And that authority has a certain character. And that is the heart of what we're looking at here. What is the authority of Christ's character or the character of Christ's authority? Like what kind of authority is it? What kind of personality does it have? This is the moment where we're we're at the top. We have reached the summit. When we look at the character of Christ's authority, we're told it's compassion. Compassion is the word that Matthew uses. It's interesting that he would tell us this at all, honestly, because what he's been telling us over and over again is what people think about Jesus. Here's what the crowds thought about Jesus. And now he flips that 
and tells us what Jesus thinks about the crowds. And it's a little bit surprising. What Jesus thinks about the crowds is very different from what a lot of people who have big followings think about their followers. What he thinks about people is a lot different from how a lot of us feel about people, especially large groups of people. Jesus has compassion for these crowds. These crowds have done nothing to merit his compassion. They follow, sure. They want to see what he's going to do. Maybe he'll heal them. That's exciting. But do they listen? Do they understand? It can be a little frustrating. I'll confide in you. When people praise me on a sermon that I've preached. It doesn't happen often, but occasionally that will happen. And, and people will say things like, I really loved the part where you said this. And I know, whatever they're about to say, I didn't say that. What's about to come out of their mouths, I didn't say it. Maybe I said something like that, but not that way. But usually I said like probably the opposite of, of that thing that, that you thought you heard. It could be a little frustrating. Imagine being Jesus, though, surrounded by people who are constantly misunderstanding what you're saying, constantly getting it wrong, and even the ones who seem to understand best certainly don't live like they get it. How frustrating it must have been for him to realize all he had given up for this, to contemplate the heights from which he had descended for this, Jesus could have looked at those people with frustration and anger and contempt, and I would have respected that. I couldn't judge because I'd understand. That's not how he looks. He looks with compassion. No one knows us in our weakness more than he does. No one loves us in our weakness more than he does either. That's hard to understand. That's one of those things. It is so easy to say that. It is very difficult to plumb the depths of what that really means. But that is at the heart of Jesus' ministry. If at the heart of the mission is the proclamation of the kingdom, at the heart of the kingdom is the compassion that Jesus has for these people. He looks at them. He doesn't judge them. He's not angry. He sees them as harassed. And helpless. He sympathizes with them and their condition. We congratulate ourselves that we're compassionate, more or less. We're not that hard on people. We make allowances for their sinfulness, for their shortcomings. The reality is, though, it's easier to love lovable people than to love people who don't deserve it. We congratulate ourselves on having compassion for people who suffer things that they do not deserve and for being hard on people who get what they deserve. That's not Jesus' compassion. Jesus has compassion on people who are harassed and helpless and deserve to be. That's different. That is a different kind of love. Jesus knows them all individually and loves them, and has compassion on them. He knows who they are. He knows how unworthy they are to be loved by you, let alone by him. But he has compassion toward them. So the question I want you to ask yourself is this. How central is compassion to Christ's gospel? 
it's important, clearly. Like, it's mentioned here, so it must be a factor. How important a factor? Like, how far away from compassion can you be and still be, more or less, in the, in the, within the borders of the gospel? That's the question. Is compassion practical application? Is that what it is? Is it that if you get the doctrine right, if you get all the theology right, if you understand all the teaching of Scripture, once you've accomplished that, then maybe one of the adornments you might want to work on is growing in compassion. It's like once you've done the main stuff and you've gotten the gospel right, you should also try to be more loving, be more gracious. That would be good. Or is it more than that? So to answer that question, let's see what Paul thinks. If you turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2, Paul's going to answer this question for us of how central compassion is to the work of Christ. And this is a famous passage and also an easily misread one. So at the beginning of chapter 2, we'll start verse 1. Paul writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So, sounds like some application stuff. Right? That sounds like Paul saying, as the body of Christ, it would be nice if, in addition to getting your doctrine right, you were also nice to one another. Maybe be a little more self-sacrificing. Try to live in a way that your testimony reflects the content of your faith. That idea. But then he gives us an, an analogy, an example, that I think makes it impossible to read what he's saying that way. He says... Starting in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not have equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The gospel is not what we believe about what Christ has done. The gospel is not what you believe about what Christ has done. The gospel is what Christ has done. The good news isn't what you think about it. The good news is what it is. And here Paul is pointing to the why behind the what it is. Why is the work of Christ what it is? Why did he do what he did? That's the mind of Christ that he's talking about here. Like, he's telling you to live a certain way, and in order to help you do that, he's telling you to think like Jesus does, to have the heart that Jesus does. That's the point here. There's two aspects to the mind of Christ as Paul gives it to us. One of them is self-sacrifice, the action But the other one is the motivation, and the motivation is love. Love, that compassion that Matthew speaks about. Look to the interests of others instead of your own. 
because you count them more significant out of affection and sympathy for them, out of compassion for them. Because this is what Jesus did. This is what Jesus was like. He had compassion on us. And he put our interests ahead of his own. He counted us more significant than he counted himself. He did not think the state that he enjoyed was a thing to be held on to, but instead he emptied himself. He came down, he became one of us, and then he became the least of us in order to save us. Is that downstream from the gospel? Is that practical application? Or is it the heart of the gospel? I think Paul thinks it is the heart. It is the core that what the gospel is about is the compassion of Christ for us. Clearly, if you don't have compassion at the heart of your gospel, then you don't have the mind of Christ. Without compassion, we don't have the mind of Christ. That love is so essential that Paul can say, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. That doesn't sound optional. It sounds central. It sounds like it is at the heart of the gospel call, which means hardness towards sinners doesn't make you like Jesus. Hardness towards sinners makes you a Pharisee. It makes you like the authorities who didn't do what they should have done, who didn't prepare the people. It makes you like the laborer who wouldn't go and bring in the harvest. Hardness towards sinners is alien to the gospel. It makes you an obstacle to the harvest. If you read Calvin's commentary, on this passage, you find a remarkable line. Remarkable because what it says is good, but, but remarkable because it's also coming from Calvin. And, and we have this idea of Calvin that he would stare at a sentence, and if it seemed maybe too kind and gentle, he would revise it to add a little hardness and harshness to it. But Calvin gives us reason to reflect on this passage and to rejoice in Christ's compassion. He says, Christ erected his throne for the express purpose of bestowing on all his people perfect happiness. Everything he did, he did out of love, out of compassion for us. He wants to restore you. He wants to make you whole. I shared this quote with a pastor friend of mine, and he replied, Human flourishing is at the heart of Christ's kingdom. It's what it's all about. It's what it's all about. It was compassion for you that led Christ to establish his kingdom. It was compassion that led him not to leave us helpless and leaderless, but instead to give us authorities to follow, to disciple us. To give us shepherds. If that's true, if he has compassion on you, then enter his kingdom. Then follow the slopes upward to the summit. Enter into this place of love. And cherish the authority 
that he has given you. Cling to the means of grace that he has provided in order to show his love to you. It was compassion for you that led him to give us the kingdom. So cherish it. Embrace it. And it was compassion for the world that led him to come down to become one of us, to sacrifice himself for us. Follow him there too. Follow him in his compassion, which means root out the hardness in your own heart. Root out the spirit that allows you to give yourself a pass and to judge others and instead strive to see them with love. Have compassion for one another and have compassion for the world. Paul elsewhere describes the gospel of Jesus Christ as a ministry of reconciliation, of peacemaking. You might picture Jesus taking the hand of the Father in one hand and your hand in the other and clasping them together and placing his hands on top to seal the reconciliation. This is his work. And he does it for his people as well. He takes one hand and another. People as different as we can be. All of us unworthy. And he puts hand in hand. And he places his pierced hands over us. He seals us together. Binds us in love. And he calls us to compassion. And when right authority calls you to anything, you should listen. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.